We did Psalm 23. We uh, really sat in the depth of a psalm and we uh, allowed it to saturate us and really soak in deeply. And the psalms for me are something that are, um, are deeply moving. The psalms are the language of prayer. It's this, this part of the Bible that for so many of us, we go, okay, well, here's the important creation, the start stuff, and there's some rules and stuff I don't really follow. And then we skip forward and we go to Jesus and we're like, that's exciting. And in the middle, there's this like huge section of poetry and song. And we go, I don't know what to do with that. And uh, too late in my life, I feel like someone pointed out to me that this is the language of prayer. And if we are to be prayers, if you are to be people about the heart of God, that somehow we have to find our way to sit and rest in the Psalms. And so for years and years and years now, I, I find myself discovering a Psalm and then just sitting in it for weeks and weeks and months and months. And out of that comes this richness of language as I talk to God and this richness of perspective as I think about this world and this faith journey that we're on. And so for the next five weeks, we'll be in Psalm 116 that for many of us in this room did not even know existed, right? Psalm what? There's how many? That's okay. Psalm 116 entered into my consciousness in November of 2011, not too long after September 11th. Uh, and the events of that day, I was in a, a U2 concert in Austin, Texas. And Bono, everyone's favorite priest, stands up uh, in the middle of this concert and he quotes Psalm 116. He quotes the message version. And he says, what should I give back to God for the blessings poured out on me? We lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to the Almighty. And I thought, I don't know what that is, but something in my soul like leapt. And I went home and I looked it up and sure enough, it was scripture. And I said, I didn't know scripture could feel like that. That I was ready to run through a wall for whatever Bono was going to tell me to do. And yet this phrase kept coming up over and over in my head. What shall I give back to God for the blessing poured out on me? I lift high the cup of salvation. This life becomes this toast that God has given us an opportunity to lift up to him. So in that, I fell in love with Psalm 116. And so now 16 years later, I finally get to unpack it for someone else. My hope is over the next 30 days, you will fall in love with it just a little bit, even a, a, a fraction of how much I love it. I think there's a lot in there for us. Uh, we have prepared for you. Um, a devotional to go with the, the 30 days. And so every Monday through Saturday, you have the opportunity to find yourself in Psalm 116 to allow it to sort of penetrate uh, your own hearts. This is uh, free for you, an ebook version on Amazon starting at 12.01 a.m. tomorrow uh, because of some strange rules. I couldn't get it done today. So uh, tomorrow through Wednesday, Monday through Wednesday, it's free for you. And then the next couple Sundays, we'll have it free as well. And so we want you to be able to get that. So if you went to Amazon and put in Psalm 116 devotional, I think it's the only one there is on earth. So um, you can have that for free. We will also put it on Facebook and Twitter every single morning at 6 a.m. And so if you are um, not connected that way, connect there and that solves all your problems. You don't even have to go order anything. Just show up at 6 a.m., read, soak, saturate. Let's go. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow, and then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. It occurs to me that everyone has a save me moment. And every single one of us in this life has a moment in time where we have cried out, save me. In distress, this is something innate in us. We cry out. You've heard the, the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Because the, the research would say, not only would the experience and the anecdotal experience say that, hey, when, when we're in trouble, we pray. 
But even the research would say that like 20% of atheists pray regularly and up to 90% of people that believe there is no God cry out to a God in trouble. This is fascinating to me because on some subatomic level, there is a, a recognition in us that we are not in control, that there's something else out there in the universe that has some ability to intervene in our situation and to change the course of our lives. You can see this so clearly in kids, right? I have a child who is not in here. She is in preschool, so we will make fun of her and she'll never know. She is deathly, deathly afraid of any insect. Doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how small. There's a tiny spider. I think I saw a mosquito. I think I heard a fly go by. And there will be blood-curdling screams throughout our house. My neighbors probably wonder what sort of thing happens in my house. Just this week, uh, the cicada killer wasps moved in. All right, you know what these things are? They burrow into the ground, and they have like baby wasps, and then they're, you know, they're like this big. And they fly around, and they're all over uh, our back patio. And they would say they're passive, they won't hurt you, unless you like, you know, put your finger into their little home. They're not going to mess with you. And yet, it probably took her, Bella was out there with me, it probably took her 15 minutes to get the courage to sprint by in order to get back inside as she was outside playing in the yard. She was having a panic attack thinking about going by the wasps. I left her out there, and a little bit later, um, I'm inside, and I think I was trying to get something actually accomplished in the day, and I just hear screaming like, and I thought, okay, well, something has really happened. And it's that parrot moment where you throw everything down, and you sprint out the back door, and you say, what, what was it? And she's kind of curled up in fear in the grass, and she said, I heard one fly by me. And I thought, oh, man. And yet it's innate in her. When she comes across fear and crisis, the first thing she thinks to do is cry out. She screams out, she cries out, she looks for help from somewhere greater than herself. I've had a couple of these moments in my life. We have these big save me moments that come up. At the age of 16, somebody um, invited me to a summer camp. They said, it's the best week of my life or my money back. That was a pretty good trick. Somewhere in the midst of that week, like the realization of the weight of sin hit me. And I had this moment. And I said, I, I can't deal with this. I don't know what to do with this. And so God, would you save me? Five, six, seven years later, I'm, I'm finishing college and I'm in this place where it's not a good place. The God has been faithful to save me, but I haven't known what to do with that. And so walking in darkness and trying to do the right thing, but failing more often than not, I'm sitting in my, um, my apartment by myself in the dark. And I say, God, I don't know what to do. You have to save me. God sent me to Africa, removed me from my trouble, sent me to a place that then opened my eyes to what faith really was, and, and all of a sudden, for the second time in my life, I felt like I cried out, and then God heard me in my distress. These were salvation moments for me. These, like, God-sized rescues where, where God intervenes, and the trajectory of our life is forever changed. These are beautiful and they're not always life and death moments. They're not always um, heaven or hell forks in the road. It's okay that sometimes we're just afraid. Sometimes we just don't know what's next on the journey of life. Sometimes we don't know what to choose in a career or a relationship. Sometimes we just don't know and we cry out and we go, Lord, I don't know. You figure it out. Save me in this. My family would admit to many save me moments in the last few years. At 16, God sent me to Jesus. At 23, God sent me to Africa. Last year, God sent me to Bowling Green. 
And it's true. That we look at each other often, we go, you know what, this is God's sort of like picture of his salvation in our lives, that he just keeps bringing new things, new rescues, new moments, new trajectory-changing, life-altering, God-affirming moments. And so we talk about this idea of being saved, and we have to ask the question, uh, by whom? Saved by whom? David cries out, Lord, save me. We often would say things like, you know what, back in that season, I got my life turned around. Or I found Jesus. And this is an important point because theologically, it really matters whether I found Jesus or Jesus found me. It's a tricky inversion, but it really matters because God is always the initiator of faith. God is always the initiator of faith. And we get hung up on this because we say, yeah, but I, I called out like it was upon me to call out and cry out to God. And, and then and only then did he come and intervene and save me. But I called out to a Jesus by a spirit who existed before the creation of the universe. Right, Eugene Peterson, we've said this before, says all speech is answering speech. That there's nothing we've said that God hasn't first spoken to us. This stuff matters in how we see the world and how we perceive God. God is always the initiator of faith. I can explain this through a discovery I had recently. I was searching, I was calling out, I was crying out. Something was missing from my life. I, I was missing this, this need that I had for something real and something beautiful. I'm going to ask Robert to go ahead and put the picture up of what I eventually found. That is hot chicken takeover in God's glorious city of Columbus, Ohio. Hot chicken takeover, if you don't know it, is the food you didn't know you needed. And if you've never had it, it is upon you to leave here right now. Like, don't wait. Straight out the doors. About two hours. They will run out. You want this. Every single meal is served with this side of incredible coleslaw and macaroni and cheese. And if you don't mind, all the sweet tea you can drink is always free as much as you want. Hot chicken takeover is the greatest thing that ever happened in my life after my wife and children. Except I ate with my wife the first time and so we kind of, we own this together. Hot chicken toke, it's incredible. And if you had heard me the first week after I had it for the first time, you would have thought that I discovered the greatest thing in the history of the world. The greatest food known to man, which it is, I would have said this, like, like life began at hot chicken takeover. And then I learned something that was very unfortunate to me. I started to do a little bit of research, and I, I realized, um, Robert, you can throw up the hot chicken timeline? Okay. That's a little graph I put together. Uh, it looks professional, I know. It took me 45 minutes to get the points on the arrows. Okay. Um, in the 1930s, there's this guy named Prince. Prince lives in Nashville. Hot chicken is actually Nashville hot chicken. Prince comes home uh, 2, 3 in the morning. He comes to his wife and he says, um, hey, I'm home and I'd like some chicken. To which she says, it's 2 or 3 in the morning and I smell perfume and I don't think, yeah, I'll be right back. She goes into the kitchen, as the story goes, and she gets every ounce of hot anything she has in her kitchen. Empties the cayenne pepper, makes him the best fried chicken that she can possibly think of to punish him for his behavior. She hands him his plate of hot chicken right there in Nashville. Prince takes one bite and says, this is the best chicken I've ever had in my life. Can you make it for my friends? 
Not long after, they opened up Prince's Hot Chicken Shack, which still exists today. And so from 1930 until I found it, hot chicken has existed. But I had to recognize that at some level, as my metaphor slowly crumbles, that my discovery of hot chicken is not the initiation of it. My discovery of something is not the initiation of it. And so moving forward, I recognize that hot chicken has preeminence, not me. It came first. Discovery of and initiation of are not the same, and so it is with God. Wherever we meet God in our path, it is upon us to then recognize God's preeminence in that path. That simply because I called out does not mean that he wasn't there waiting, that he wasn't there setting the path, that he didn't know it was going to happen long before, preordained, foreordained, set it up, and then smile when I feel like I thought I did something right. To which he goes, remember 2,000 years before you existed, I sent my son for you. I knew this moment was coming, I was prepared for it, and I destined to save you long before you ever knew you needed salvation. We have been saved. We would use the passive voice. From what? Sin, yes. But what? David said, the cords of death entangled me. So what is sin? To which most of us answer uh, some bucket generalization, right? Well, you know, pride and arrogance, other things that can't be uh, defined or nailed down in any specific action. Uh, Those those are the things we name. What are my sins? These big buckets. And I would challenge you in your own heart to name it. When you were saved, what is it that you were saved from? What were the specific things that you were stuck in? What were the cords of death that entangled you? What were the bonds that held you down? And so I look at my own uh, history, I look at my own path, I look at my own days, and I go, I know exactly what they were. And because it's Fifth Sunday, I just say sexual immorality, drunkenness, licentiousness. Always works out that when the kids are here, we're talking about this stuff. But it's what I walk through. Those are some of the specific things that over and over in my life were the cords of death that entangled me. They led to misery, they led to this overwhelming feeling of dread which is the shadow of death upon us like david the anguish of the grave came over me in the midst of your darkest season you knew what the feeling of that was you know what it's like to walk in the shadow of death because you're in the darkness of sin why does it matter to name it specifically because hindsight is always knocking and this matters because we've been told that hindsight is twenty twenty, and yet I would argue that is absolutely not the case. Hindsight is always knocking, and hindsight always invites us to romanticize the past. We always talk about when life was fun or exciting or easy. Personally, we reminisce about the good old days, back with the gang. When, remember when we used to be fun and free and do X, Y, and Z? That was so great. Professionally, you've been in an office place where somebody is like, they, they remember, hey, things were better when Joe from accounting was here. Remember how great he was? And yet everybody on earth complained about Joe from accounting until the day that he got fired. And yet six months after, you're, gosh, I really, I really liked that guy. He was great. I mean, he wasn't great here, but, but we can convince ourselves we really liked him. 
Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Say not, why were these former days better than these? For it is not wisdom that you ask this. It is not from wisdom that you ask this. If it is not from wisdom, then what is it from? Folly. I like the message version here. The message says, wise folks don't ask questions like that. Which is the kind of thing someone would tell you as you eat a plate of hot chicken. Wise folks don't ask questions like that. Why why were the former days so much better than these? Why were the good old days so good? Wise folks don't ask questions like that. Because hindsight has a way of romanticizing the past. Hindsight is that thing that has you clicking on your high school girlfriend or boyfriend's Facebook page just to see how he or she is doing. And you have to be careful. Because hindsight will bite You can't see that the bridge is out in front of you if you are focused on the scenery in the rearview mirror. You cannot plan effectively the journey ahead if all you think about is the journey that's behind. College was fun, full of romance and risk-taking, when in reality, I did not shower enough and I ate a lot of ramen. And I romanticized that into something it wasn't. So how can hindsight then be helpful? Because we all have the ability to look backwards. I said, name the sin. Why? If something leads to death, I want to know what that is so I can avoid it. If something leads to death, I want to know what that is so that I can avoid it in the future. I had a friend in college that died in a skydiving accident. I don't skydive. No, thank you. I don't mind if you want to skydive. But I found a thing that led to death, and I I don't want to be a part of that. When I was little, I have this very few memories of childhood, right? I have this strange thing where I I can't pull much up. But one of the things I remember was visiting my uncle in the hospital after uh, a near-death motorcycle crash. And the way he looked and, and the way he sounded, and I thought, I don't want anything to do with that. So you will not find me on a motorcycle. I do not begrudge you the desire to go ride your motorcycle, but I won't get on. So much so that uh, a few years back, my wife and I were visiting her, her uh, grandmother in a nursing home in Abilene, Texas. And the local Harley chapter was doing a really sweet thing, and they were coming around and giving rides to all the, the folks from the nursing home. And these big, bad dudes on their big, bad bikes, and one after another, they'd pick someone up out of a wheelchair, and they'd kind of hop them on the back, and they'd hold on, and, and he'd, they'd take like an eight-mile-an-hour tour around the parking lot. And we watch her grandmother do this, and we're like, man, isn't that sweet? What a, great, what a great idea. And he drops off old grandmother, and she goes back in the, the chair, and she's a little bit shaken, but man, that was something. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he goes, you want to spin? There's 140-year-old people getting off of these bikes going eight miles an hour in the nursing home parking lot. And I look him square in the eyes. I said, you will not find me on the back. No, sir. Steph gets on. Vroom, vroom, around they go. She comes back. I've been praying the whole time. Sure, she's never going to make it, you know. She's all right. I don't get on motorcycles. I got a thing. The cords of death entangle me. I'm not getting on a motorcycle. I hope you love motorcycles. And I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it is life-giving for you. It's just never going to be for me. We have to find the things that lead 
to death or destruction or devastation. We have to find the things that lead down the road we don't want to go on. And we have to know what those are so we can root them out. There's some things that are just bad ideas. And if we don't see sin as the cords of death that once entangled us, then we become doomed to repeat them because we have not named them, we have not set them aside, and we are not working actively to rid our lives of them. To which some people will say, but Jesus took away my sin. And I would say he took away the penalty of your sin, not your ability to re-engage in it. Jesus wiped away my sin resulting from my consistent drunkenness. He took away my immorality and my licentiousness and my drunkenness, my relational destruction. He took away those sins and the penalty. But he did not take away my ability to have eight drinks tonight and repeat them all. I have to recognize the path that leads to destruction and then avoid. Paul was telling the Romans that Jesus took care of sin in Romans chapter 6. I'll read verse 1 and 2 and then skip ahead to 12. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 12, Let not then therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. It says, let not sin therefore reign. Which is to say, this is an active practice of the believer. To be under grace is to become a hunter of all things that stand opposed to God's glory. The mark of the believer, to be under grace, is to stand opposed to all things that come against God's glory. We are quick to find those things in our society, in our neighbor, in our parent, in our child, in our spouse, the things that they fall short at. This is saying, start with yourself. You've been bought with the price. You've been made new. You were once dead and you are now alive. So submit yourselves to this life because it doesn't get better than when you live in its fullness. We're living in the gluten-free revolution. We had a friend that had celiac disease 10 years ago. And we had no idea what that was or what gluten was and what are you talking about? Why won't you eat pizza? And what's the story? And yet she lived in such a way that was so fascinating to me. Steph took her to South Africa on a mission trip and she packed an entire suitcase just of like uh, special food and bars and things that she could eat, not knowing what we would run into along the way. She actively hunted for gluten in everything she ate and then rooted it out. Why? Because she knew it led to misery. It led to the death of her body. An inside-out rotting. And because she had celiac, she then hunted for gluten everywhere. And she knew how much was in what and where. Grace isn't the excuse to sin freely, but the glorious remedy that allows us to live freely from our diagnosis of sin. Diagnosed with celiac, she learns to root out gluten. Grace isn't the excuse to sin freely, but the glorious remedy that allows us to live freely from our diagnosis of sin. Grace allows us freedom so we can now spend our days rooting out things that kill us so that we might live out true life. A diagnosis that gave her freedom to eat and live and find joy apart from the misery of gluten sounds kind of familiar as an illustration to you and I who have been set free with a diagnosis now of grace that allows us to live freely and separately in joy and hope and rooting out sin all along the way. It's as if we say, save me, 
Lord, save me. And God comes and does it, and we go, hold on, one more bite of this pizza crust. Which, for those who would know, would say that's probably the last thing you want to eat. And over and over again, we say, save me, and run back to the same destructive way. Save me into the same destructive way. Now that I know what was killing me, I can root it out and live in freedom apart from it. Tim Keller says, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of the right restrictions. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of right restrictions. So a fish experiences full freedom restricted to water. Full freedom, only restriction, got to be in the water. Walk down the street, free a fish from the Maumee River, send it into the hills of Ohio, how's that going to go? Certain death. But in its restricted zone, it experiences full freedom. And so we revisit our save me moments. This is why knowing your story is so important. Who saved you? From what? If, like David, God heard your cry for mercy, what does that mean for the rest of your days? Verse 2, I will call on him as long as I live. David says, I will call on him as long as I live. This is not simply uh, beautiful poetry. This is a statement of trust. This is a promissory note. I will call on him as long as I live, which forces us to ask the question, where is our trust? In trial, where do we turn? In stress, where do our eyes go? In times of trouble, to whom do we cry out? There are no shortage of options. And ultimate trust in anything less than God leads to disillusionment and disappointment. Social media cannot fill us. Entertainment cannot fill us. Career achievement cannot fill us. Money cannot fill us. Your family cannot fill you. Your spouse cannot fill you. Not because any of that stuff is evil. For God's glory, that stuff is great. Get it. Not because your spouse or your best friend or your favorite hobby is somehow wrong or bad simply because they were not designed to carry God's load. And there's very few things that are actually more inconsiderate than placing God's load on something that wasn't designed to carry it. And when you place that load on another, on a hobby, on a person, on a thing, when you place that level of trust and hope for grace, on anything less than God, what happens is the thing on which they are placed will crumble. Save me is reserved for God. So David says, he cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Remembering the path that you've been on helps us to determine the path that you will take. Remembering that the cords of death entangled us helps us avoid them in the future. Remembering your sin, specific and unromanticized, helps us remember what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And then remembering your save me moment, remembering your salvation, allows us to ask again, knowing what I know, where will I place my trust in the days to come? And so where we start in Psalm 116 is with this phrase, I will call on the Lord as long as I live. And if we remember our sin properly and we remember our salvation truly, 
then we can start with that phrase. I will call on the Lord as long as I live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have rescued us. God, before I knew I needed you, before I cried out, before I shouted, save me, before sin or breath or heartbeat or conception, Father, you saw fit to send your Son. You saw fit to give Jesus to sacrifice on behalf of me, on behalf of us. Father, I pray that we, as a people, would remember that. That we would see your preeminence in our lives. And then, God, as we think about our stories and we think about the place where we needed you, in our place of darkness and our place of struggle, struggle and trial, Father, that we would remember that you were waiting, that you rescue, and that your salvation was once, but it's ongoing. And as your grace unfolds in our life, Father, my prayer would be that we would get a deeper and deeper sense of what that grace is so that we might live in such a way that is a deeper and deeper giving of that grace to others. Father, forgive us when we place uh, God-like weights on those around us. Father, remind us that it's you alone where we can turn, that it's you alone who rescues and saves, and Father, that the others around us, that, that loved ones and family, that friends and spouses, that they are your good gift to us. But God, they can never stand in for you. So Father, may we call on your name as long as we live, as we remember your salvation and we remember your goodness and we remember your glory and your grace. Father, find us in your presence. Find our hearts recentered on you. Lord, you are where our help comes from. You are where our hope comes from. So renew it in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.